To start off, I'm going to read you a story. Is that all right? Can I read you a story? It's called the Funambulist. You can look up that word later. Funambulist. It's a real word. A boy ran away from home and joined the circus. Before being permitted to apprentice under any particular act, he was given the job of cleaning the stables for the many animals they kept moving all across the country. Eventually, he was charged with preparing the performance tent, too. They would set the big tent up in the night so they could be ready to do shows on the following midday. The boy would rise before daybreak and walk through the rings. He would make sure the barrel of water was full for the elephants. He would sweep the hard pack of dirt so the lions wouldn't get glass in their paws. And on those first mornings when they had just set up the big tent, he would watch one of the performers rig up the high wire. It was the strong man, the meathead. He would use his exceptional strength to wind up the cable through the two pulleys. Then he would tamp down the support wires. The boy was, would act as though he wasn't watching the man, but then the strong man would scale one of the two major tent poles and he would walk across the wire all alone. This went on for months and months until finally the boy was caught watching the performance. To save embarrassment, the boy went to the strong man. Why did you do it, you asked, he asked. You walk across the wire when there's no one here to see it. Why, it isn't even part of your routine. What's the glory in it for you? The strong man gathered his things to leave, but the boy was stubborn and followed him. Well, said the strong man, it's simple. I could not expect someone to risk their life walking across the wire strung by my own hands unless I was willing to take the walk myself in secret. The boy nodded. Aren't you afraid, he asked. The strong man was still looking up at the wire. Always. But while they are applauding the performer, I have the satisfaction of knowing I kept him safe. Some consolation, the boy said. There's no glory in it for you. That is where you're wrong, my boy, said the meathead with a smile. You see, I am the only other person who knows what it looks like from up there. The strong man walked away and the boy finished his sweeping. He knew who he wanted to apprentice under. Oftentimes preaching feels like walking on a tightrope. And the reason why is everything you say can be balanced by something else that could be said. And not only that, but everything you say as a preacher, you are aware of perhaps the argument that other people would make also using scriptures in the opposite direction. And so oftentimes, Christian leaders and maybe a small group leader, and if you've been at a church Bible study at any point in the past 30 years, you'll hear someone say this phrase, well, it's a balanced thing. It's a balanced thing, right? It's a balanced thing. And it is sort of a balanced thing, but the only way to have balance is through in incredible tension on both ends of what you're balancing on. <laughs> the reason why a tightrope walker can balance is because the wire is pulled incredibly tight. And I've always been fascinated by people who get up on high wires and walk across them for a living. A fascinating documentary that is incredibly moving. It is for adults, but it is incredibly moving. It's called Man on Wire. And it's about the French high wire artist who walked between the two towers, the twin towers. I believe it was in the 80s. And it just tells the story. It's like a heist movie. It tells the story of how they got up there and used a bow and arrow to fire the wire across and tighten it up. And then he, 
He walked with no net, obviously, between the two towers. And honestly, if you want to clench every muscle in your body, and I do mean every muscle in your body, just wait until that scene. It is one of the most intense scenes I've ever watched in a film. And he talks about the magnificence and the beauty and the, and the incredible stillness of being up so high in the face of his own death. And there is a real beauty to articulating the truths God has entrusted us when we're a leader. If you have the privilege of even just sharing your faith with someone at a coffee shop, you know the honor and also the reverence of saying something that you know to be true, saying something that someone else could disagree with, but then also humbly entrusting your words to the Lord, knowing that whatever you say, even if it's a balanced thing, and even if you're creating some tension in people, that God's going to use it. I might just create some tension in you this morning. And it's the only way I'm going to be able to get across the wire. Okay? But I don't want you to feel... I don't want you to feel discouraged or defeated by what I'm saying. Because the tension I want to create is not a tension that's in Jesus. You understand, Jesus is not in tension. Jesus is fully loving. He's not the tension between love and wrath. Right? But we as believers, as we try to grow and as we try to grapple with the truth, we often have to walk across a certain tension that's created in our lives. And the tension that I have been facing lately is the tension of our Christian faith itself. I was talking with a friend this week, and he said, how can something, he's talking about Christianity, he said, how can something that claims to be so good be so bad sometimes? Have you ever wondered that? How something so good can often do so much harm? I said to him in response, it does feel right now in this season of life that we're in that the church is walking on the edge of a knife. That was my response. It was just the first thing that came out of my mind and my heart. I feel like I'm on the knife's edge all the time. Maybe you feel this way too sometimes. A certain issue comes up in society and you're not quite sure how to respond to it. Maybe friends are talking at work. They're talking about perhaps some of the bad things about faith and religion and spirituality. You want to respond, but you're not exactly sure how to respond. Or maybe you're with a Christian friend and their behavior and their attitude is actually unbecoming of Christ. And you're like, I kind of want to slap them, but I don't know if that's what Jesus wants. So I'm going to wait. And like they turn away and you like cock your hand like, I just want to smack you. And then you don't and you're like, oh, thank you Jesus for keeping my hand from their face. I was going to lay hands on you very quickly. But there's this tension, there's this tension that's created and, and sometimes I feel like I am not just walking across a high wire but I'm actually walking on the edge of a knife. And the reason... The reason why I call this sermon Blade Runner is because I would I use any excuse to mention my favorite movies in church. <laughs> but the moment I said that to Denny, I said, I feel like Christianity is walking on the edge of a knife. 
I thought about the movie Blade Runner. Now, again, like Man on Wire, Blade Runner is a movie for grown-ups, okay? And I do not recommend it, so don't watch it. But it's an old sci-fi film with Harrison Ford when he tried to act, but now he's just kind of phoning it in. But the movie is based on this character whose job it is to hunt down robots who are so close to human, they first of all believe that they're human, second of all everyone else but these Blade Runners don't know whether or not they're human, but because these robots have been created for slavery, they're not allowed to leave and when they escape, these Blade Runners will chase them down and terminate them, destroy them. The fascinating thing about the movie, it's very slow, it's very methodical, the fascinating thing about the movie is all along, as he's destroying these, they're called replicants, when they die, they look exactly like humans dying. They have blood running through their veins. And then the, the film posits this central question, which is whether or not the main character, Harrison Ford's character, himself is human or whether he is himself a robot, a replicant, who is destroying his own kind. And the reason why that felt a little bit familiar to me is every time I think about the injustices that have been committed by Christianity, every time something so good and so loving appears to be so bad and so evil, I think about this movie, Blade Runner, and how a replicant, someone who is kind of like a human but different, of a different kind, designed to serve the world, instead chases down perhaps his own kind and destroys them. And I think about how some of the greatest injustices have been committed by people who claimed to know the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And I think that that is where our tension comes from. Because we want to serve Jesus, but we exist inside of a faith that is deeply conflicted at times. So here we go. Are you ready for the tension? Does the Bible support or abolish slavery? You need to think very carefully about this. Before I read to you some texts, we're going to get to Philemon in a minute. Before I read to you some texts, I would like to introduce to you another element of tension. See, because one of the things that happens is, is when we talk about, let's say, slavery, we have a hero in our Christian faith, a modern hero named Martin Luther King Jr. And so when things happen, when injustices happen in the name of Christ, other places, they're very easy to see. Like, for example, when a man who claims to follow Jesus separates a nursing mother from her infant child at the border and then claims that Romans 13 allows him to do it, I say no, that is Antichrist. Pretty simple. But that's another country and another culture. <laughs> it's a lot harder to recognize where we are complicit in Christianity's brokenness. I'm going to do a lot of reading today. I hope that's okay. I love to read. Reading is relaxing for me. Uh, it's also re relaxing when my wife reads to me. So I could call her up here, but she's a little busy. So you're going to have to do with my voice for a little bit longer.
I asked you if, if the Bible supports slavery. I want, I want to ask you how we feel about this. The stated purpose of the Indian residential schools was to make the indigenous peoples of Canada embrace Western values and Christianity. Those two sets of beliefs were inseparable at the time. In the eyes of many state officials, the agent that could and should bring about such rapid change was the Christian church. Missionaries of all denominations embraced the cause of Christianizing and civilizing the indigenous peoples of Canada long before the Davin Report of 1879. Indeed, in the 1880s, there was already four church-run boarding schools in operation. Frustration with other forms of missionary work led all the Christian denominations to support the model of boarding or residential schools. In the decades to come, the government turned over the operation of most of the residential schools to the Catholic and Anglican churches. Most people of European descent at the time shared the view that Christianity and civilization supported each other if they were not actually synonymous. As early as 1852, Samuel Rose, the principal of Mount Elgin Residential School at the time, said, This class is to spring a generation who will either perpetuate the manners and customs of their ancestors, or, being intellectually, morally, and religiously elevated, take their stand upon the improved, intelligent nations of the earth. A memorandum of the Convention of Catholic Principles expressed similar sentiments. All true civilization must be based on moral law, which the Christian religion alone can give. Pagan superstition could not suffice to make the Indians practice the virtues of our civilization and avoid its attendant vices. The clergymen and women who took on the roles often saw themselves as a protective force for the indigenous people. They said, the Indian child is a weak child in the family of our nation, and for this reason presents the most earnest appeal for Christian sympathy and cooperation. In British Columbia, William Duncan of the Missionary Society reported, I describe the conditions of this people better by saying that it is just what might be expected in savage, heathen life. Missionaries led the campaign to outlaw sacred ceremonies such as the potlatch on the west coast and the Sundance on the prairies. In British Columbia, for example, the Roman Catholic missionaries argued for banning the potlatch, saying that the ceremony left so many families impoverished and they had to withdraw their children from school to help them find food in the winter. While on one front, missionaries were engaged in a war on Aboriginal culture, on another, they often served as advocates for protecting and advancing Aboriginal interests. Many learned the languages, conducted ceremonies in their schools and languages, and those efforts were not unrewarded. In 1899, 70,000 out of 100,000 Indian people in Canada identified as Christians. So I want to ask you a question. Were we successful in giving the gospel to the indigenous people of Canada through the residential school system? It may seem like the answer is obvious, and I don't want to play the devil's advocate, but here I go up on the high wire, okay? Are you ready for this? The logic of what we did is not so immediately apparent as wrong unless we back up and we look at our whole faith itself. Because I would like to suggest to you that the same logic that presented love 
in the form of a so-called superior culture trying to change an inferior one, that form of loving the First Nations people of Canada is the same form of loving that led to 1,800 years of slavery endorsed by the Christian church. And until we figure out what love actually is and what it isn't, we won't know how to A, read the scriptures properly. And secondly, we won't actually know how to walk out that love in our daily lives. Because love isn't love if it comes with an air of superiority. Love isn't love if it imposes its will upon another. And in order for us to learn this, we're gonna have to go low and instead learn long-suffering. Dad last week preached on how Jesus is the king of Canada, how we live in the kingdom of Christ, and therefore we are not first loyal to the empires of the world. You were not first Canadian or American or a citizen of the British Commonwealth. You were first a citizen of heaven, and you're not loyal to two emperors, two kings, two prime ministers. You're just loyal to Jesus. But his world is so different than our world because it's built on a fundamentally flawed principle. Which is that you serve a king who will not control you. You serve a king who will not coerce you to do his will. You serve a king who even though he has higher values than yours, he does not force you to submit to those higher values. And oftentimes, what I've found is, I've found that in the name of love, Christians, now again, when I say in the name of love, there are those who use love just as a pretense to do what they want. But then there are those who sincerely want to love, but they don't realize that their love is tainted with the spirit of control. I had a conversation with someone who said this. They were advocating for Uh, at the time, they were advocating uh, on behalf of Christians in the Republican Party to change the laws of America to look more like what they thought Christian laws should be. And I said, I don't think that that's a good idea because Jesus didn't call you to save the American political system. He's your king. He's not asking you to save the American political system. He's got his own kingship. And they said, but you don't understand, Connor. If I am loving, if I'm truly loving, then I know what's best for them. No, 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 but I know it's, I've set you up to be biased against this person, but really think about it. Does not love want the best for another person? Does not love seek to protect another person from harm? Here's another one. Does not love want to speak the truth? When we interact with culture, oftentimes we are burdened by a sense of loving or a desire to love that is intermingled with a desire to control the outcome. And because the outcome is good, we believe that the ends justifies the means. So for example, uh, about a week and a half ago, I got an email from a pastor in our region who invited me to a prayer meeting to take Canada back for God. And he listed a number of the immoral things that God would not be pleased with in Canada 
And he believes that unless we gather together as leaders and pray, and then vote later, not at the prayer meeting, (laughs) unless we gather together and pray and vote and do our part to organize, we will not be able to see Canada returned to the glory of its Christian foundation. And as I'm reading the email, all I'm thinking about is the quotes from the Truth and Reconciliation Committee that I've just been reading, and my heart is a little bit broken and a little bit confused. Because I realize that so often, what I think is love is not actually love. It's superiority disguised by sentiment. Now, I don't want to come across like I'm preaching at you from a soapbox, like everybody else has got it wrong and I've got it right. I want you to know that I'm the first one who has failed at this. I've told you guys this story before, but when I was, I think, four years old, I never believed in, in, in uh, Santa. And so because I never believed in Santa as a kid, anyone who did believe in Santa, I considered them a target for evangelism. So I remember being in Zellers, where the lowest price is the law, and my mom was talking with this kid's mom. I don't even know who these people were. Honestly, this memory just stands out so vividly to me. I I was four years old, maybe five. And I said, you know, we were talking about Christmas and what we're excited to get. And he said, I'm just so excited for Santa to bring me presents. And I said, well, you know, I don't believe in Santa. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son. So you pray to your God and I will pray to my God and we will see who gets presents on Christmas day. And I, I never saw that kid again, as far as I know, but I was satisfied as a five-year-old, as a little Pharisee, that he would wake up on Christmas morning with no presents. It was like Mount Carmel, right? And Elijah, he would know the one true God, and he would repent in his heart. <laughs> he, he probably got more presents than me, it's true. I remember one time I was preaching and it felt like a high wire act and we were in this sports quonset and had no air conditioning and it was in the summer. And I remember preaching and feeling like I was just smashing it out of the park. Sometimes you feel miserable up here, I just wanna let you know. And then sometimes you feel like, wow, this is really, this is really working. I really feel like I'm saying what the Holy Spirit wants me to say and people are resonating with me. And I come off the platform and I just feel so, so pleased with myself and a few people like I even applauded a little bit, which you know, kind of, Stroke my ego a little bit, and I sit down, I'm feeling really good, and then Renee Recordin leans over to me, and she goes, hey, I just want to let you know that your shorts are a little bit sweaty. And I had been wearing, this is one of the most embarrassing moments in my life, by the way, I should have I forewarned you. I had been wearing shorts that were too tight, that should have been thrown away, they shouldn't have even been donated. And so I had huge sweat stains up the front and back. Like it was the most embarrassing, disgusting view. I remember thinking, how did these people even pay attention to me? (laughs) I remember being in high school and there was a, a class uh, where they, they had the students write down, Mr. Epp had the students write down 20 questions they wondered about God, life, and everything else. And a handful of students wanted to know what I thought about their questions. I felt super honored, right? I felt very humble, 
we got a special classroom together and they asked me these questions. They, they looked to me as a representative of the Christian faith. So they asked me about marijuana and they asked me about euthanasia and they asked me about where you go when you die and what happens to the Hindu boy who dies before ever hearing about Jesus and all these other things. And I answered the best I could and there was a lot of nods and there was a lot of appreciation and smiles and I was like, wow, I really, I got to do something good. And I walked away from that. Instead of feeling humble, I felt a little bit, you know, puffed up and a little bit excited that I got to serve Jesus. We go into the very next class. It has to do with uh, how foolish it is to believe that God created the world. And I decided that I was going to be a one-man crusade <laughs> against the deception in my school. How quickly I went from being the humble, wow, you guys want to hear what I think, to I'm about to tell you what I think. It took really just one class period. The person who actually challenged me the most, <laughs> it's so funny, was, uh, was Haley Eaglesham. <laughs> she now attends our church. She just called me out. She's like, wait a minute. No, that's bogus. You're, and I was, just, I was just phoning in all my Christian answers. There's an answer for this and there's an answer for that. I was just Mr. Bible Answer Man, just boom, 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 knocking him down. And I remember Haley went, no, 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 that's bogus. And I said, would you please be quiet? And everyone ooh. <laughs> And I realized, oh man, in the name of love and to serve Jesus, I am way in over my head. <laughs> I went to her afterwards and I was like, I am so sorry for telling you to shut up. I, I just got overwhelmed. And she's like, no, it's all good, Connor. We know, we, know you, we know you. She didn't say we know your heart. She was a different person back then. <laughs> but I don't come to you saying that I have figured this thing out. I come to you knowing that I'm the first one who doesn't get it right. I come to you saying, confessing really, that oftentimes what I claim is loving or what I claim is a faithful witness to scripture and to Jesus is actually my best attempts to lie to myself and convince myself that what I'm doing is actually love when it's not love at all. And the challenge is this, is that there's an extreme on one end and there's an extreme on the other. One extreme says, because I love you, I know what's best for you and I'm going to impose my will upon you. And then on the other end, there's another extreme that says, actually, you know what? Whatever will be, will be. And it doesn't really matter what you do or don't do. I'm just going to back right up. I'm going to let you be whatever you want to be. I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do. And I'm going to call that loving too. And so we, we walk on the edge of a knife trying to decide how do I actually live out a life of love that is fully engaged and present with people that isn't absent because we live in an age that quite frankly is, is devoid of control. It's devoid of anyone submitted to the will of anyone else. It's, hey, whatever will be, will be. Everything's equal. Everybody's okay. But the message of the gospel is not I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, Right? Some stuff is just not okay. So how do we navigate? How, how do the Christian missionaries of the 1800s in Canada serve Jesus to the First Nations communities of Canada? How do we share the gospel? How do we love other people? Let me return to the question that I asked at the beginning. Does the Bible support slavery? Let me read you some scripture verses. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ, Ephesians 6, 5. Christians who are slaves should give their masters full respect so that the name of God and his teaching will not be shamed. If your master is a Christian, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. You should work all the harder because you are helping another believer by your efforts. Slaves, that's First Timothy, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. This is Colossians 3.22. These are all verses from the New Testament, by the way. I could get you some scarier verses from the Old Testament if I wanted to. You read those verses and you clench every muscle in your body. And I mean every muscle in your body. Jefferson Davis, the first president of the Confederate States of America, said, slavery was established by the decree of the Almighty God. It's a sanctioned in the Bible in both Testaments, from Genesis to Revelation. It's existed in all ages. It's been found of the people of the highest civilization and in nations of the highest proficiency in the arts. Richard Furman, the president of the South Carolina Baptist Convention, said, The right of holding slaves is clearly established by the Holy Scriptures, both by precept and example. Ebenezer Warren, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Macon, delivered a sermon where he said, Slavery forms a vital element of the divine revelation to man. It is necessary for ministers of the gospel to teach slavery from the pulpit. As it was taught by both the men of old and the Holy Spirit. Both Christianity and slavery are from heaven. Both are blessings to humanity, and both are to be perpetuated to the end of time. I, wanna, I won't actually go into it, but I do want to mention this book. There's a book, I'm going to mess up the title, but it's about how the Civil War was actually a theological crisis. And one of the biggest issues in the Civil War was abolitionists were concerned that the criticism was right, that their claim that you shouldn't enslave other people was against the Bible. So the hardest work they had to do was not to convince other people that slavery was inhumane. The hardest work abolitionists had to do was to convince Southern Christians that they weren't being disobedient to God by being against slavery. So, we have this Christian faith that's built on love and loving one another. We serve a king who will not control you, but instead will give up his very life at our hands out of love for you. And then we have 2,000 years of history where we sometimes get it right and we sometimes get it so, so painfully wrong. I wish I had more stories for you about where I sweat through my pants. Because I don't mean to lay an endless heavy on you, but the reason why I think we need to examine this is because I really want our love to be loving. And I really want us to be inspired to give a witness to Christ, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, but I don't want us to do it out of a spirit of control. In religious studies, student discipline was often linked to the lessons that were being taught. Once in religious studies class in an Alberta school, Vidaline Elise Jenner was caught speaking to a friend. She said, oh, 
oh boy, I'm in trouble now. I walked to the front of the class and he made me turn around to face my peers. And I kind of thought I was a shy gal. I turned around and I knew I was in trouble. And he said, I was teaching you. What did I teach you anyway? And I said, something about 40 days, Jesus fasting, right? He said, oh, you weren't listening. So for your punishment, this is what you're going to do. You're going to, he took headpins out of his desk and he took them out of his desk and he said, spread your hand out. So I spread my hand out like this, both hands. And he started jabbing me in front of the students, jabbing me in the hand. And he said, you're going to feel what Jesus felt on the cross. You're going to feel the same pain. He was just jabbing me and jabbing me and jabbing me. And tears were streaming down my eyes and looking at all the students, students looking at me. They were shocked. And after he stopped, finally he stopped. He stuck me underneath. He, he used to have this great big desk. He stuck me underneath his desk and he said, this is where you're going to stay until the lesson is over. So, oh, oh my goodness, I just sat there. I was just crying, but I cried quietly. Many students were confused by the contradictory combination of religious teaching and harsh discipline. Juliana Alexander, a, school, a Kamloops school student said, you know, they were teaching me in this church about what I had to do and how I had to be this perfect person or whatever. And yet at the same time, that's not what I saw because I thought to myself, well, if you're a priest and a nun, how come you do this to a child? Or how come you're doing this to me? And I would say it out loud and I would get more lickings. Although in most of their official pronouncements, government and church officials took the position that Aboriginal people could be civilized, it is clear that many believed Aboriginal culture was inherently inferior. In 1947, the Roman Catholics told the Parliamentary Committee that since Canada was a Christian nation and having all of its citizens belonging to Christian churches, he could see no reason why the residential schools should foster Aboriginal beliefs. 150,000 children over 100 years were forcibly separated from their families. Many never got to see their families for the entirety of their education. They were forbidden from using their ancestral language or participating in their ancestral customs. One young boy testified that when he first got to school, they shaved his head to his scalp. And he was taught that that meant the closer you cut your hair, the closer it was the person who had died and whose spirit had gone to the great spirit. And when they cut his hair to his head, he assumed they were telling him that his mother back home had died. Again, these are Christian people trying to do the work of the Lord in Canada. One of my favorite quotes is, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. The last residential school closed in 1996 in Saskatchewan. I have had it in my heart to be a church that ministers to the First Nations community of Canada. And believe me, I do not want to get this wrong. And here's the problem. The problem is, is that because of the brokenness in our world and some of the brokenness which we created, I walk around seeing need and feeling superior to it. I have a friend who will remain nameless, who visits me probably once a month and smells remarkably like mouthwash. He has a hard time finishing coherent sentences and he has a hard time looking me in the eye. And I want to love him and I want to serve him with the love of Christ. 
But I will confess to you, the first thing I wanted to do was to pray for him to get healed so that he would be better and so that he would be able to leave me. I realize that sometimes what I think is love isn't love because I start at the end and I believe that everything I do is just because I know the outcome. And what I'd like to suggest to you today is simply this. The love of God is only seen in submission. It's never seen in control. I've read a lot to you, and normally we get to the scripture a lot earlier than this, but I want to quickly read you one passage out of Philemon, and I want to give you what I consider to be the key to all of this. You're saying, (laughs) you mean to tell me that love isn't always love, and I might mess it up? How am I ever supposed to live in the world? How am I ever supposed to serve anybody else? I know, there's a tension here. But let me read you a passage. First, Philemon chapter 1, verse 10. So, context is this. Paul, remember, I just set the context for you to say, suggestively, of course, that the Bible seems to support slavery. There's a whole lot of passages that talk about how slaves should be submitted to their masters, and you can dress it up and fudge it, but for the majority of human history, people kept other people in chains and used the Bible to do it. Okay? Here's where I believe the Bible read correctly in the light of Jesus does not support slavery. It's in one particular verse, and I believe this is the verse that creates the foundation for the entire culture of slavery to fall apart. It does take 1,800 years, but it does fall apart. Are you ready for this? Sorry, I was telling you the context. The context is in Philemon. Philemon is actually the name of a slave who receives Jesus. And he has run away from his master and then receives Jesus from Paul and is mentored by Paul, okay? Here's what Paul has Philemon do, Philemon the slave. He sends Philemon back to his master named Onesimus. And so the letter of Philemon is about a slave and Paul is writing it to a slave owner. This is what he says. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, Oh, no, I'm sorry. I have the names reversed. Onesimus is the slave. Philemon is the slave owner. I apologize. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, who I have begotten in my imprisonment, who was formerly useless to you, but is now both useful to you and me. I am sending him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, who I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would be in effect would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separate from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If you would regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. This, I believe, is the architecture for the end of slavery. This is how the kingdom of heaven defeats oppression. Paul does the wrong thing. He sends a slave back to a slave owner, but he does it with a particular caveat. He says, he is still your slave. He submitted to me as a son. He will now again submit to you as a slave. 
But I am asking you for the sake of the gospel, not because I can force you. Although earlier in the, in the, in the letter, Paul says, I technically could force you because you owe me a lot. But he says, I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to control you. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you that you treat him the way you treat me. And if there is anything he owes you, make sure you send the bill to me. See, you can read the Bible many different ways and you can build all sorts of arguments with it. You can make God, Jesus even, out to be wrathful and vengeant. You can make the Bible a justification for whatever kind of behavior you want. But if love is really love, then it does not presume its will on another, but rather serves and submits even to the brokenness to from up and within bring the end to that brokenness and to win the hearts of the ones we are tempted to control. See, Paul is saying to Philemon, I could control you, but I'm not going to because I want to win your heart. And I want you to treat your slave as a brother in Christ. You know what's the end to human slavery? And you have to understand this, there's more people being trafficked today than there was in 1800. It's just a different form of slavery. So this is as important now as it was back then. You want to know what brings the end to slavery? It isn't laws, legislation. It isn't pasting good Christian moral whatever. (laughs) The end to slavery is when people treat other people as their brothers and sisters instead of as objects they can control. What is slavery? Slavery is just the control of the person. See, when love wants to control you, it's just a modest form of slavery. Instead, Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to win your heart. And I want you to treat him as you would treat me. And anything he owes you, bill it to my account. Do you want to know what the role of the church is in a broken world? It's not to come along and say, hey, you know what, everybody? We know better. You got a problem. You got a problem. You got a problem. You get a blessing. You get a blessing. It's not that. That's the Oprah way of changing the world. We don't come from a place of riches and bestow upon the poor from our great spiritual generosity, the great things we know. We come low and we go underneath. And in the middle of the brokenness, we lift up and we win people's hearts. My favorite quote from Martin Luther King, I'm going to quote him later. He says, he says to the, those in Selma, Alabama that opposed them, he said, we will not stop loving you even as you are hurting us because in the end, we will win your heart. <laughs> Can I get really practical with you? Because again, we said we were going to hit some uncomfortable topics this summer. There has been a major push in Canada and in America to bring the end of abortion. Even as early as the Didache, which was was an instruction guide written to churches. It's not part of the gospel, but it was written by the church fathers. So even as early as AD 60, 30 years after Jesus, they are writing to the churches saying, permit none of your church members to participate in abortion. So it has been wrong and it has been around for a very long time. But not only was abortion legal in Rome, it was completely customary and and totally common and perfectly acceptable morally if you had a baby that you didn't want to leave it at the garbage dump and to walk away. 
Do you know what Christians did in the Republic of Rome? They didn't elect a senator. They didn't demand different legislation. They didn't pick it by the dump. They adopted so many children that entire new Christian communities were raised up and were flourishing. And you knew all of these orphans were Christians because they were given the names of the apostles. <laughs> and we actually have historic record that the entirety of Rome changed its view on leaving babies at the dump because Christians kept adopting them. Do you want to know how we change the world? We go low. Believe me, I, I want to see the end to every injustice. But I do not want to justify a spirit of coercion. Cover it up in the name of love. In John, the apostle says, he who claims to love God, yet hates his brother, is a liar. He's been blinded by the darkness. You want to know the first person you lie to is yourself. You say to yourself, ah, you know what, I do love God, but they, they just have a problem. They just need to get with the picture. We justify our resentments and we hide and we claim that our hatred of another person is actually loving. And we end up doing the most despicable things, sometimes in the name of God himself. The last thing I want to tell you is this. In the mix of all these different things that I've been reading and wondering about and that have been swirling around in my brain, I've been reading the most amazing book by Desmond Tutu. It's called No Future Without Forgiveness. It tells the story, it's a simple autobiography of his time leading the first Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa at the end of apartheid. He says he thought he was going to retire and Nelson Mandela forced him to take on possibly the very worst and most dangerous job possible next to Mandela's job, which was to lead the commission to figure out how to prosecute the crimes that had been committed under apartheid. Just to give you a, just a quick snapshot of the kind of crimes we're talking about, one of the tribes would go after another one of the tribes by something called the necklace, where they would fill a tire with gasoline and set it on fire to kill the person. And it was so common that the children would dance around the bodies in the street. So here is a 70-year-old archbishop that has to figure out how do we deal with and heal from these sorts of crimes. He decided to pioneer something beautiful. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission allowed every single person who had committed such crimes to come forward, and as long as they were honest and specific, they could neither be prosecuted nor sued for anything they confessed before the open court. Police officers who had beaten men to death came forward in front of everyone and said, I have been living with the horror of what I have done for decades, and I thought I would have to take my own life to get away from the pain of what I've done. And they thought that the victims would be angry with the government for setting it up this way. Did you know that? They thought that the victims would, would have such public outcry against such a commission. You mean these people aren't going to be arrested? They're not going to be prosecuted? They're not going to be, there's going to be no litigation against them? But Desmond Tutu said the overwhelming majority of victims were present with their oppressors 
and offered personal forgiveness at the same time the government did. They said, you've humanized us by telling the truth, the truth we thought you would hide forever. Desmond Tutu, an Anglican bishop, introduces a beautiful concept that I would like to leave you with. It's called Ubuntu. It's an African word, it's a Zulu word in South, South Africa. It means a shared humanity. Your life and my life are inexorably tied together. We can't separate from one another. And as you rise, I rise, and as you fall, I fall. And until our love and our compassion starts with the presumption that we are neither better than people, nor do we know what they actually need, but instead we come low and we just serve them in the middle of their brokenness. Our love will never be the kind of love that changes the world. But if, if we can embrace other people, even the broken ones, as our brothers and as our sisters, if we can claim that our humanity is a shared humanity and that we are already entrenched in the struggle of the world, we can be part of the healing process. I'd like to encourage you, if you have a problem with a friend, a coworker, if you see a homeless person on the streets of Saskatoon, and if your first thought is one of superiority, one of judgment, even the kind of judgment that sounds a lot like love, well, they, you know, they, just, they just really need to get their act together. It's time for a hand up, not a hand out. Have you, have you ever thought about the arrogance in that statement? A hand up, not a hand out? See, that's not the statement of shared humanity. That's the, sta- that's the statement of superiority. If we would be the ones who would commit to considering everyone, not just our Christian brothers and sisters, but everyone in humanity as part of our shared common struggle, that my life is tied to your life and your life is tied to mine, then when we seek to love other people, our love will be from the place of submission. The further along I go, the more I am part of the quiet, peaceable revolution of Jesus where I don't presume to know what is best for people, but I love and I serve them anyway. So I just want to pray for you because I really believe that the Holy Spirit is here. I know he's, he's convicting hearts, he's convicting my heart, but I also believe the Holy Spirit is here to heal. And I specifically feel that there are people here who have been, you have been a victim and you have made other people a victim. And yeah, it might not be as extreme as the residential schools or apartheid in South Africa, but you know when your love has sought to control other people, and you know when other people who claim to love you were actually trying to control you. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is here to heal. He's the spirit of reconciliation. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you did not take us out of the world, but you sent us into the world to love through our long suffering. And right now I pray for every person who is here, who has struggled, who has suffered, or who has caused others to suffer. And Lord, I pray that you would uncover the truth of how you love us. 
of how you serve us. Lord, I pray that our church and that the church worldwide would be graced with the spirit Paul had towards Philemon. God, that we would, that we would live as brothers and sisters to broken people. And that we would not presume to know what's best and we would not seek to control them, but that we would go low and that we would be willing to suffer. That we would be willing to bill, to foot the bill on behalf of others and to, and to charge it to our account for the sake of reconciliation. God, make us people of true forgiveness. Lord, I repent. I repent for, for all the times I considered myself above my First Nations brothers and sisters. I repent for all of the, the critical, thoughtless, arrogant things I've said. They are your sons and daughters. You love them so. And you did not put me in this world to be above them. Lord, heal our hearts in all the places where, where people have hurt us and have wounded us in the name of love. God, may we be victims no longer. God, you can rec rescue us from victimization before the person who has offended us repents. So we receive your spirit of reconciliation. We know that the very worst injustices in human history, all of them, all of them were poured out upon you upon the cross and that you alone reconcile the world to yourself. We receive your spirit of reconciliation within us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Martin Luther King said this, only through an inner spiritual transformation do we gain the strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world in a humble and loving way. That was from his sermon entitled Becoming Transforming Nonconformists. The idea that you would submit to broken people in the middle of their brokenness is going to be a form of nonconformity because everyone's going to be like, wait, you're not going to fight back? <laughs> you're not going to try to fix it? No. We're going to go love, low, and serve out of love. <laughs>